Glad you're here this morning. Hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving with family. Hope that uh, the weekend is giving you time to rest and reflect. Uh, we're going to be actually jumping into the Word today. I'm not doing a Thanksgiving message. That's not our typical uh, process. We don't, we, we'll slow down usually for Advent. We're actually doing things a little different this year, but, but most holidays we will just keep walking through the Word. And so this won't be a Thanksgiving message, but I realized as I was standing back there singing, it doesn't mean we can't be grateful for it, right? I mean, we can be thankful that we have the Word of God to learn from. We can be thankful that the question that's going to be posed today is, uh, is answered in His Word. And so the question I want to start with, Luke chapter 20, we're actually going to be Luke 20, verses 39 through 47. We'll close out that chapter today. Um, the question I want to start with is, who is Jesus? Three, three words, who is Jesus? Pretty simple, basic question, Right? But it's debated. Like, it, it seems like nobody agrees on the answer to this question. Now, it, it, it's, it's, it's been debated. It's, it's been being debated for a long time. That it, it's seen clearly in the distinction between what the Muslim or what Islam would teach about Jesus versus what Christianity would teach about Jesus. You know, on the one hand, you have Islam that would say that, that Jesus is just a prophet, like he's a good teacher. Uh, we're work, we work in, in West Africa where predominantly 99.5% of people there are Islam or animist, and they would deny Jesus, the, the Christian Jesus. They would deny that, that he is uh, divine in, in, in his identity. They would say, yes, he was a great prophet, he was a good moral teacher, but he was nothing more than that. It's not always that distinct. Sometimes it's more nuanced. Like the difference between Mormon Jesus and Jehovah's Witness Jesus and the Christian Jesus but they'll tell you, they'll enter into conversation with you, and what's well, all the same Jesus? Jesus is the Savior of the world. They'll use the same terms that we use as we speak about who this Jesus is until you begin to press into his divine identity. And even though they're using the same terms, they're not talking about the same man. Well, who is Jesus? Is he just a good teacher? Is, is he just a prophet? Or, or is he more? Is he more? This question isn't new. The debate isn't new. It's been being debated. It, it didn't start, let's just say, it didn't start with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Christians. Like, we weren't the first ones that finally began to disagree about who Jesus was. It, it didn't start, as old as the conflict is, and old as the disagreement is, it didn't start between Islam and Christianity it started in the very midst of Jesus' earthly ministry. The moment Jesus began to teach and the moment he began to work miracles and the moment he began to demonstrate himself publicly, immediately, immediately he found resistance. In fact, the text we've been studying, this is the very heart of the issue. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the leaders of Israel, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, are rejecting Jesus. In fact, his identity is the central issue. They're rejecting his authority because they won't accept his identity. They won't, they won't receive him as he's presented himself to be. But here's the difficulty. This is the problem, whether, whether it's now or then, this is, this is the heart of that problem. 
This is not just getting an answer right on a test. It's not making sure that you check B when you know that the answer is B so that you can get a good grade or a good score on the test. This is more than just Bible trivia. This is more than just an issue of I'm going to win the game of trivial pursuit and, and I get more pie pieces than anyone else. This is deeper than that. The answer to this question either aligns us with Jesus or with those who reject Jesus. There's only two sides. There's only two, two ways. That we, we, we can cut up one side into a number of different ways to go about talking about who Jesus is. It's been done. Jews, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Buddhists. All, all these people have a, a view of Jesus. You're either with him or you're against him. There is no substitute. There's no substitute for knowing and trusting Jesus to be exactly who he claimed to be. Anything less is a rejection of him and agreement with anyone else who rejects him. The thing is, it's right to say, it is right to say that Jesus is a good teacher. It's right to say that he's a prophet sent from God. It's right to say those things. And you can even say them together. He's a teacher and a prophet. But if you'll go no further, if you'll go no further, it doesn't matter how right you are on those two points. That incomplete answer is a wrong answer. There's a famous quote. It's often called the trilemma from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. You've probably heard it before. Maybe I'm not telling you anything new, but I think it speaks to this point and it'll help you understand the problem as we step into the text. It says this, Lewis writes this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. That's crazy, right? That's lunacy. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man is... I'm sorry, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. He, he, he's either a liar, like he knew he was wrong and he was misleading people, or he was crazy, a lunatic on the level of someone who would, who, who would uh, call themselves a poached egg, or he was being honest. And a lot of people say, oh, there's more than three options here. Maybe he could just be mistaken. Maybe, maybe he just didn't understand his role. Well, then he's still not a great teacher. He's still not someone when you want to present as the example for all people to follow as one who would make claims to be God. You don't want to put him up there if he's wrong in any way. He goes on. You make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left, us open. He has not left that open to us. He did not 
intend to. There's no substitute. There is no substitute for knowing and trusting Jesus to be exactly who he claimed to be. Anything less than agreement with Jesus is rejection of Jesus. There's no substitute. As we study today, as we walk through the text today, you're going to see the leaders, the leaders of God's people rejecting Jesus, refusing to align themselves with him. And you're going to see that they don't fare too well. So this isn't something we just want to get right. This is something we need to get right. So let's let Jesus tell us. Let's let Jesus show us. We'll pick it up in verse 39. We'll read through verse 47. Then some of the scribes answered him, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. I'm going to stop right there and just kind of grab the context and we're going to jump right into it, right? So Jesus has, he's cleared the temple of merchants and, and, and money changers. He has, he has pushed them all out. He's, he's driven them all away. He's cleared it out. He's purified the temple, as some would say. And then he comes back every day and he teaches and he preaches the gospel. He's in the temple every day for the last week of his life. Preaching and teaching the gospel. And as he did that, he faced conflict. He, he comes with this offensive measure, get out of my father's house. It's meant to be a house of prayer. Get out of his house. And then he sets up shop and he begins to teach and he begins to preach the gospel. And this is, it's at odds. It's radically at odds with the teaching of the day. It's radically at odds of what all the rabbis would have been teaching. And yet every day he's there and they come and they come looking to trip him up. They come seeking to, to try to catch him in some uh, false saying or say something that, that would, would, would discredit him in front of all the people. And, and, and they come asking questions. In fact, Luke 20 is, is a, a chapter filled with questions. Three questions they seek to ask him that Luke shares with us. First is, who's, by whose authority do you do these things? They wanted Jesus to discredit himself, to say that he didn't have it by his own authority. But he demonstrated that he had authority over them. The second question was, well, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? When they come and, 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 and try and despise, they're, they're watching and they're listening and, and they don't hear him saying anything. So they ask the question, is it right to, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And, and Jesus answers in such a way that... Shuts them up. Silences them. And then Sadducees come and they take their turn and they're like, well, hey, what about the resurrection? The resurrection is ludicrous, right? Now, if you'll side with them, then obviously the Pharisees and anybody who is of that line of thinking will reject him. And if he sides with them, or if he rejects them, if he doesn't side with them, then they have all the power. They have just one more reason to kill him. But again, he answers in such a way that Silences them. But his answer, his answer surprised some of the Pharisees. That's it in verse 39. It says, then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. He affirmed the resurrection. He affirmed that, that, that one day everyone would rise. He affirmed that there would be a bodily resurrection. He taught that. That's the passage we studied last week. And, and they appreciated it. But they didn't appreciate it because they were affirming him. They didn't appreciate it because, oh, now we're, well, we're on the same side as Jesus. They had one point of doctrine the same. 
And incomplete answers still a wrong answer. But they're silenced. They can't say a thing. They, they don't know what to say. But they don't have to. Because Jesus is about to speak. And he's about to move back to the offensive and ask them a question. Pick it up in verse 41. But he said to them, here they are all gathered, chief priests, elder scribes, all these people that have been testing him. He said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make, a, make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So Jesus presents to them this, this riddle, if you will. He presents to them a question that, that they're not going to be able to answer. He, 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 first he's talking, let's talk about the they. Let's talk about who's he, who's he talking to, the, the they. How did they say? It's likely the, the scribes. The, the scribes have been trying to trip him up. The scribes are the ones who are, who are responsible for teaching the law. They're the ones that would, would study. They, would, they, would, they, they made a life out of this. They studied and they taught. They were called rabbis. So like Gamaliel and, and Hillel, they were rabbis. They weren't necessarily priests. They weren't necessarily of the line of anybody. It's just somebody that had gotten picked to, to study and, and spend their life studying and seeking to interpret and teach the law. And that's what they did. And they exercised a lot of authority over the Jewish people. So he says, well, how do they say this? How do the scribes say this? How do they interpret the scriptures about the Christ being David's son? Now, the second thing you need to see in his riddle is that Christ being David's son was common knowledge. Like it was normal. It was the everyday thought. It was something everyone understood. This had always been, this had always been the perspective. In fact, it's, it's, it, the, the scripture is clear about this. There, there was no disagreement. There was no, there was no arguing back and forth over this. All the, all the people in Israel, all the factions, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them, they agreed on this fact. And the scripture is clear about it. I'll just share a couple with you. I'll put them in your notes as well. If you're following along on YouVersion Live, they're, they're there as well. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. This is God speaking to David. When, you, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Let's just skip down to verse 16 and, and you'll see it. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is God's promise to David through his offspring. Through David's son, God was going to establish an eternal kingdom. This was a promise that God made to David. You see it again, Psalm 89, verses 3 through 4. You've said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Eternal kingdom, eternal son. Verse 35, once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And then the prophet Isaiah, writing, he, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
You recognize that passage? It's, we hear about it every Christmas just about. When Jesus was born, this, 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 when, when he was incarnated, when he took on flesh, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, and for how long? Forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. They understood, they saw that, they, 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 they had a perspective here. They understood that the Christ, the Messiah, if you will, that it's the same thing. Christ is the Greek word and Messiah is the Hebrew word for the same thing. The anointed one, the chosen one of God to be the savior of his people. They knew that he was to be the son of David. And to this point, to this point there have been a number of times. Jesus, walking around doing ministry, has been called the son of David. Just most recently was back in, in a few chapters ago when Jesus is coming into Jericho and there's the blind man there and he's crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus is walking past, crowds of people surrounding him. The blind man's like, what's going on? And somebody says, hey, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus of Nazareth. He's a son of David. It's a messianic title. It's a, a title that demonstrates that this man sees Jesus, or will see Jesus, understands Jesus to be the Christ, the anointed one, the one chosen by God to establish David's throne forever. And this really bothered the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. It, it, it frustrated the leaders of Israel because they refused to recognize Jesus as anything more than just a problem that they needed to fix. They, they wouldn't accept his authority. They wouldn't accept his teaching. You see, you see probably the most consistent people in this, in, in this gospel story, some of the most consistent people are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Because they wouldn't bow to the fact that Jesus was the son of David because they wouldn't accept his identity, they wouldn't bow to his authority. And here we are today. Can't we all just get along? <laughs> Everybody, it, we're all going to the same place. Everything's going to work out in the end. Can't we just coexist? Yeah, I, I can live next to anyone. But we won't live with everyone forever. Because we don't all agree about the very most basic reality. Who is Jesus? These guys are actually being they're actually being pretty consistent with their view. I, I wouldn't suggest teaming up with them. They are right about a couple of things but they're wrong about an awful lot. And actually, Jesus, as he, as he asked this question, they are stumped. Matthew tells us in his account of the same event, Matthew tells us that they can't answer it. Nobody can answer. Not only did Jesus' answers silence them, but his questions silenced them. They couldn't speak back. They couldn't offer up any answer. He'd asked a question. He'd presented a riddle that they couldn't figure out. 
But we get to learn some of Jesus' logic. We get to see some of what he's doing here. If we'll just look and listen. He, he shows, he shows that, that in some ways they're being consistent, but he shows their inconsistency as well. He's like, how can they say, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Especially since David himself wrote this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make, a, make your enemies your footstool. That's actually a, a, a reference back to Psalms 110 uh, verse 1. The, 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 the psalm opens that way. It's a psalm of David. David sitting under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, empowered by God's Spirit, writing these words, says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, it's, it, it's difficult for us to see because we're not, we're, we're not seeing the original language. There's actually two different words being used for Lord. There are some clues in the English. In fact, the first Lord is all caps. If you look in your Bible, if you look on, I, I think the words are on the screen, the Lord says my Lord, all caps. That's the English translation's way of demonstrating to you this is God's proper name, Yahweh. Basically, I, I don't know of an English translation. If, if there's one out there, I, I, I don't read it. So take that for what it's worth. If you find one that doesn't do God's name, in all caps, then maybe you shouldn't read it either. I, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But the Lord, God, says to my Lord, right? So Yahweh says to my Lord. Now, that's different. That, now we can begin to see what he's doing here. It's not just a play on words. This is, this is two different identities, two different perspectives. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So here's what we begin to see. God is talking to someone that David clearly sees as a greater authority than himself. But how can that be? David is the greatest king Israel ever knew. Everybody looks back to David. The covenant God made was with David. David's kingdom was going to be extended forever. That was their perspective. And yet here's David. David himself writing, Yahweh, God says to my highest authority. The one that I bow to, the one that I obey, the one that I answer to. This is no middle manager. This is no person that's under authority. This is a person who rules. He's someone greater and higher than David. In fact, if you read the whole thing in its context, let's just read it. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's, he, he is David's greater authority. He is a greater David. It's clear in the text, the one that David is referring to is someone that David bows to. Well, why is that significant? Why does that matter? I mean, really, is it that big of a deal? Well, maybe not from our perspective. Now, we grow up, we grow up in a radically different culture. We grow up seeking to make our children better than us. In fact, many fathers, mothers will work hard all their life to give their children more opportunity to, to try to give them a, 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 a greater chance in the world to make something of themselves. They look forward to celebrating that their children become something greater than they. 
That's not the way it was then. The son would never be greater than the father. The son was only who he was because of his father. Solomon wouldn't have looked back and said, hey, look at all I've done. I'm greater than my dad. He never would have done that. He could only be who he was because he had received his position, his title, his identity from his father. It's a lesson we could probably learn today as we think about who we are in reference to who our parents are. I'm not saying give up on your kids and hope they struggle in life. I'm, not, I'm saying that we probably ought to land somewhere in the middle. They would have never done that. And then you go study the kings that followed after Solomon. Go study the, the history of Israel and Judah's kings. I mean, they were, they were a radical mess. No one in the world would have ever said, look at these kings, man. They're so great compared to David. No. David was the preeminent king in Israel's history, greater than Saul, their first king. He was greater. He was, the, he was the one that they all looked back to. He was the one that, that God had entered into covenant with. He was the one who the promise was made. Your kingdom will be established forever. I will raise up your offspring. And he will establish your throne forever. But here is David. Submitting himself. Under the authority that's, that's greater. God. My God has said to my highest and supreme authority. That's what he's saying. And the scribes, they can't say a word. They're stuck. Because they know in their interpretation of the scriptures, in the way they're seeking to remain consistent, they have just found an inconsistency in themselves. And they're stuck. They can't answer it. They refuse to answer it. Here's a Thanksgiving message for you. We can be grateful because we're not left without an answer. We, We can answer this. We can see what Jesus is doing here with, with the help of, of, of the rest of the gospel, with, with the help of history on our side and knowing what's coming next. We can see who Jesus is. We can understand what, what, what's happening here. Jesus is the Christ, the son of David. He is David's son. He is the Christ that had been proclaimed. He is the one who's come to establish an eternal kingdom, to rule forever and ever. And we know he did. We, we, we know he didn't just, he isn't just this, but he saw himself to be this. When that blind man saw him or, or heard him coming, I guess I should say, when the blind man heard him coming and, and, and was like, who's going, who, who, who is this? What's happening? And everybody says, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's like, son of David. Jesus didn't just, he, Jesus didn't say, hey, don't call me that because that's not who I am. He said, what would you have me do for you? Be merciful to me. Jesus affirmed it. He received it. He accepted it. When he rode in on the donkey, and they're calling him, they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord, son of David. He didn't say, shut up. 
Even when the Pharisees came to him and said, hey, make them be quiet. Make them, that's blasphemy. You need to shut them up. What in the world are you doing letting them cheer you on and worship you and exalt you in this way? He, he didn't say shut up. He said if they don't do it, the rocks will cry out. See, Jesus isn't just this. He is. He is this. He isn't just this, but he saw himself to be it. He believed it himself. He knew it himself. He saw himself as the Christ, the son of David. He was the one that had been promised from the very beginning of the scripture that was going to come and and establish God's kingdom forever. He was the one that was going to come and be the anointed one that was going to come and lead and, and deliver God's people out of sin and slavery. And rather than correct people when they came and said this to him, He received it. He accepted it. So he is either this, or he's a madman, a lunatic, or a liar. Or he is Lord. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of David. And Jesus is the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is David's Lord. This means that, just think about this, because David is the preeminent Lord. He's the preeminent king. He's the one that all other kings kind of fall under. And David says, my Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord, Yahweh says to the one that rules over me. Jesus is greater than he is the preeminent. He is the the top of the, the pile. He David's a middle manager. That would have blown their minds. Jesus is the CEO. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. See, while the scribes couldn't answer this question, after Jesus' resurrection and empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter stands to preach the very first gospel message preached publicly after his ascension. And after he gets all the way through it, he says this, Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, without any doubt, without any question, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The one who died is both Lord and Christ. Jesus isn't just a good teacher. He isn't just a prophet sent from God. He is the Lord, the highest of all authorities. There's no higher authority. There is no no greater authority to to command and to set standards and to to call to submission and obedience and, and faithfulness. He is the Christ, the only one able to save his people. There is no other name on heaven, in heaven or on earth by whom we shall be saved. He is both Lord and Christ. And as the story unfolds in Acts, the people heard this and it says that many of them were cut to the heart. They recognized that they had killed the Messiah and they had killed the Lord. They had killed him. What do we do? See, this is so drastic and so dreadful for them because they understand there's another step. Jesus is both Lord and Christ, the Son of God, 
the only begotten son of God. They had killed God. I appreciate how J.C. Ryle says this. The teachers of the law, these scribes that Jesus was challenging with his riddle, the teachers of the law were unable to answer this question. They did not see the great truth that the Messiah was to be God as well as man. And that while as a man he was David's son, as God he was to be David's Lord. Who is Jesus? See, they believe something about Jesus. But just like their agreement with him in in verse 39 where we opened, you've spoken well, teacher. Their agreement was incomplete. And they were still wrong. So they were only willing to go so far with Jesus. They weren't willing to know him or trust him for who he claimed himself to be. They weren't willing to accept the people's perspective of him. They weren't willing to listen to the claims of the people who called him king. They weren't willing to listen to those who would say he's a prophet. They weren't willing to listen to those who would say, son of David, he's our Christ. They were not willing to believe it. And because they wouldn't, Rather than commend them to the people, he doesn't just warn them, he condemns them. Let's pick it up in verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, This is in response to their silence. He changes his audience and he begins speaking specifically to his disciples for, every, for, for everyone to hear. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And they still won't listen. They just angers him more and they fight harder to find a way to kill him. See, rather than telling people to listen to the scribes, Jesus told the people specifically, specifically his disciples, he told his disciples in the hearing of everybody, <laughs> beware of them. They are condemned. The reality is, is that as we consider this today in the text, of who Jesus has shown himself to be, who the scriptures show Jesus to be, we don't just see how he applies it to them. We can see how he applies it to us. So the true preaching of Jesus as Lord in Christ distinguishes between the credible teacher and the false prophet. True preaching of Jesus as Lord and Christ distinguishes between the credible teacher and the false prophet. These scribes, the one Jesus is questioning, challenging the, with, with his riddle, they're false teachers. He's saying, beware of them. Don't listen to them. Don't, don't, don't run to them. He's not commending people to go and listen to them. He's saying, run from them. Flee from them. Watch out for them. Don't listen to what they say. Don't submit yourself to their authority. I use, I, I use the word true here because there are many people out there that would say something good about Jesus with a false motive. 
They use the scriptures as a means to their end for their own selfish gain. And in fact, we see it happening in this text with these, with these scribes. They, they like the position it affords them to teach the scriptures. They like how people adore them and meet them in the marketplace and greet them. They like wearing the fancy clothes that make them look good. But rather than knowing the scriptures and trusting the scriptures and thereby knowing Jesus and trusting Jesus, they reject what the scripture would have to say about him. They deny it. They use the scriptures as a weapon against other people. Or they use the scriptures to make themselves wealthy and prominent. You know, it's not just the scribes in Jesus' day that do that. It happens all over the place today, too. They'll say something good about Jesus with their, with their end in mind. Prosperity teachers, faith healers, legalistic, pharisaical teachers of the fundamentalist movements. They might use the same terms in association with Jesus that we would. But they're not truly preaching Jesus because they don't trust and know Jesus. True preaching of Jesus as Lord and Christ distinguishes between the credible teacher and the false prophet. And this gets to the heart of that first part of Jesus' warning. How do we know it's true? How do, how, do, how do we know if someone's truly preaching Jesus? How do they live? How do they act? See, truly following Jesus as Lord and Christ is the difference between authentic Christianity and religious hypocrisy. Truly following Jesus as Lord and Christ is the difference between authentic Christianity and religious hypocrisy. These scribes, they did, they did not know Jesus. They, or the scriptures that pointed to Jesus, they rejected that. They didn't see Jesus as fulfilling anything. And he calls them on their hypocrisy. Wearing the clothes that made them look good while their hearts were rotten and dead. Walking around in, in their arrogance, appreciating the attention that their position afforded them. Loving the special places in the synagogues. Loving the positions of, uh, that, that, that everybody else wanted. Like the people, you know, that first seat at the table. The people look and think, oh man, that guy is holy He's got his stuff together. I wish I could be like him. And then they flock to him in the marketplace. Oh, there's Rabbi so-and-so. I, I hope I can get close to him. I, I hope I can say good morning to him. And they loved it. They ate it up. They didn't care about the scriptures. They didn't care about the people. And you see it in the way they treated the widows. They abused these people. Rather than serve God's, serve God's people, they fed on them. It says it. He, he, says, it. he, he says that they, they <clears throat> let me get back to it. He says they love their places and seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses. They devoured widows' houses. They took advantage of even the widows. They would walk into places and they'd say, hey, I've earned my place. You owe me tribute. Give me some money. Feed me. Take care of me. Honor me. They would devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. See, the motive underneath their, their righteousness their, or their self-righteousness, the motive underneath their appearance was a pretense. 
So we don't just look to someone because of what they say, but also what they do. That's why Paul, in his, in his uh, character traits, in, in his teaching about elders in the church, he, he lists one competency, one thing they must be able to do. Teach. That's the one thing they must be able to do clearly. They must be able to teach. Uh, if, if a man desires to be an elder, that's a, a good desire. But here's the list of character traits or qualifications, if you will. And only one of them is something he can do. He must be able to teach. The rest of them speak to his character. Because if he's a great teacher, but he has no character, he's not going to teach people about Christ. He's going to teach people to love him. He's going to teach people to affirm him. And rather than serve God's people, he's going to feed off of God's people. So let me just, instead of pointing at all the people I could say, or people you should run and flee from. Let me just put myself out here. Without asking their permission, the other pastors in this church, let me just put us out here. And anyone else that would stand in this place to serve and lead God's people as an elder or pastor in his church, let me just put us out here. I have the honor most weeks of coming and standing in the pulpit and teaching God's word. I do the best I can to point you to God's glory and to help more fully realize Jesus' fame. He is so worthy. But if you can't see what I teach being explicitly exampled in my life, I would say leave. I'm not kidding about that. I'm not just trying to give you some sermon illustration or pull on some heartstring or be self-deprecating. I'm telling you, because of what Jesus says, I'm telling you, if your pastors are not exhibiting the character of Christ, we will not be leading you to Christ. Leave. Or better yet, confront us and call us to repentance. Tell us to sit down and let someone who God has called to stand in that place. That his truth might be known. And his people might be led. And his children might be served. And his word and his gospel might be preached. You know, there's a lot of people who can communicate. A lot of people who can draw a crowd. But look at their character. Are they arrogant? Are they hypocritical? Are they abusive? Beware of the scribes. Truly following Jesus as Lord and Christ is the difference between authentic Christianity and religious hypocrisy. Do not follow a hypocrite. But this isn't just about teachers. As long as you're looking at me and your pastors, will people follow you? And when they follow you, who will, who, who will you lead them to? Who will they find behind the image that you present? 
Who will they meet when you talk to them about your righteousness and your goodness and your worth and your value? Will you lead them to Jesus? The only way you will is if you'll follow him. And the only way you'll be able to follow him is if you know him to be Lord and Christ, your greatest authority and your great Savior. Finally, truly trusting Jesus as Lord and Christ is the difference between eternal salvation and eternal punishment. The final words Jesus has to say here in this warning bring us front and center to the truth of why the scribes shouldn't be commended for their consistency, but were condemned because in their consistency they wouldn't align themselves with Jesus. They had to reject him. See, instead of changing and repenting and turning towards him, they continued to, to do all they could to deny him. The truth is, this isn't just the basic measure of a teacher. It's the basic measure of a Christian. There's no substitute. There is no substitute for knowing and trusting Jesus to be exactly who he claimed to be. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Son of God. But on this Thanksgiving weekend, when there are so many things that have our attention like Black Friday sales and family dinners and lots of food and turkey. I, I just wonder if you've asked yourself lately, if you've examined yourself in your heart lately, who am I following? Am I following a pastor and pastors who would lead me to Jesus? Or am I following a pastor and pastors who would lead me to themselves? At the heart of that question, it's really this, is am I following Jesus? Or am I following people that make, make me feel good about me? Make me feel comfortable? Let me use the scripture as a means to my own end, to justify myself in my own sight, to make me believe that I'm okay. Or am I seeing Jesus exalted as both Lord and Christ and thereby grateful because by his name and through his authority, we can be saved forever and ever. But reject him. And we stand with the scribes, condemned. Let's pray. Father, help us. Teach us. Our minds are finite. It's difficult for us to understand how Jesus can be both God and man. But this is simple for you. Your spirit has been promised to us that your Holy Spirit would reside in your people, that you'd open the eyes of your people, that you'd help us to know the truth. So I pray, Father, don't, don't, just, don't just show us the, 
the edge, but help us be saturated in the reality that, that you have come, that you've sent your son. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. And because he did, we now bow to him as Lord and we trust in him as Christ. Would you help us to, to, to not just walk in that with some, some basic idea, some 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 theoretical thought, but some reality that we believe that affects our day-to-day, that affects us when we walk out of here, that affects us tomorrow morning when we get up and the, and the holiday weekend is over and we walk back into the to routines of life. That we live in obedience to his commands and we, and, and we live in faith of his work on the cross in our place for our sin. And Father, if there's any here today that have never trusted your son, that have never seen him as Lord and Christ, I would, I would, I would plead with you Give them eyes to see, ears to hear, that they might believe and be saved. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.